ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday, the 2nd of February. I'm Sabra Lang, coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. European Union leaders have unanimously agreed to give Ukraine $82 billion in new aid, despite weeks of threats from Hungary's far-right leader to veto the package. Hungary's Viktor Orban has close ties to Russia and he blocked the deal in December. The aid comes at a critical time for Ukraine, with American funding held up in Congress and little progress on the battlefield as it approaches its third year of war with Russia. Europe correspondent Catherine Dis has more. After weeks of deadlock and protracted talks, European leaders managed to bring Hungary to the table. European Parliament President Roberta Metsola. We have been for many weeks uh, keeping our Ukrainian friends on tenterhooks as to whether we would reach an agreement uh, and the fact that it was reached so early on is also uh, thanks uh, to the work, hard work done by a lot of our leaders. The holdout had been the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the EU leader with the closest ties to the Kremlin. After vetoing the deal late last year, he then sought concessions, demanding annual reviews of the funding. He also sought to use his vote to protest an EU decision to freeze Hungary's access to funding over rule of law concerns. Asked whether Orban got a compromise deal, Roberta Metzola wouldn't be drawn. The case has been brought. Questions will be asked, have been asked. Uh, Is it an ideal scenario? No. But have we found unity and unanimity today? Yes. So I think we should welcome that and we should really send the strongest of message, which is the opposite of what uh, Putin would have wanted. Politics aside, news of the aid was welcomed by Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. I'm grateful for your decision on the financial instrument for, for us, uh, for our people, for Ukraine. This is a clear signal that Ukraine will withstand and that Europe will withstand. The funding comes at a critical time for Ukraine. Two years since Russia's invasion, the war has ground to a halt. The economy desperately needs propping up and political infighting in US Congress has stalled the release of military aid. Lawrence Friedman of King's College in London says the agreement was essential, but securing American support will be key to making military advances. What this package does is it gives some assurances, not just for this year, but for a few years hence, that the economy will be given uh, vital support. Uh, Essential services can keep on working, that the country isn't going to go broke. The deal shows Europe remains united behind Ukraine and continues to defy Moscow. But without the supply of much-needed artillery from its US ally, its ability to hold ground or regain territory might be hampered. This is Catherine Deese in London, reporting for AM. The United States President Joe Biden signed an executive order which will punish Jewish settlers who've been accused of attacks on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. United Nations figures show daily settler attacks have more than doubled in the West Bank since the October the 7th attack by Hamas on Israel, with more than 380 Palestinians killed in that territory since then. For more on the US decision, I spoke a short time ago with our North America correspondent, Carrington Clark. Carrington, what's in the order? Well, this new presidential order, which importantly doesn't require approval from the US Congress, freezes any United States assets of those specifically targeted, 
and generally bars Americans from dealing with those who have been targeted. Uh, the US President Joe Biden says high levels of extremist violence and the forced displacement of people in the West Bank is he calls a serious threat to peace and stability in the region. Now, the context is that since the 1967 Middle East War, Israel has occupied the West Bank of the Jordan River, which Palestinians want for an independent state. Israel has allowed Jewish settlements to be built there, but uh, most countries deem those specific settlements to be illegal. And there has been this marked increase in settler violence in recent months, according to the United Nations. And what's been the response to this executive order? We've already received a statement from the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. He says the vast majority of the West Bank settlers are law-abiding, and he says Israel already deals with those who aren't, and he says there's therefore no reason for these so-called unusual measures. Carrington, the President is in Michigan today, which has a large Arab-American population. What are the domestic political considerations at play here? Yeah, Michigan is one of the crucial states for the upcoming presidential election. It's part of that so-called blue wall, which were previously Democrats' strongholds, but they switched to Donald Trump, who was able to break through in the 2016 election. But then Joe Biden was able to win them back in 2020. So Joe Biden today is addressing union workers and hoping to cement their support, but his campaign is really concerned by polls that show Arab-American support for the president has collapsed in recent times, uh, in part because of what they see as his role in the unfolding humanitarian disaster that's currently occurring in Gaza. It's about 3% of the Michigan state is from the Middle East or North Africa, and given how small the margin of victory in both 2020 and 2016 was, it's going to be a crucial factor in the upcoming election. North America correspondent Carrington Clark. A dozen humanitarian organisations have signed a letter calling on the federal government to restore funding to the United Nations agency that delivers humanitarian aid inside Gaza. Many governments, including Australia's, suspended payments to the body known as UNRWA after Israel claimed some of the agency staff were involved in the Hamas October the 7th attacks. With more, here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield. As the humanitarian crisis in Gaza becomes more deadly by the day, a group of NGOs have signed a letter to Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Foreign Minister Penny Wong. It calls on them to restore funding for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Mark Purcell is Chief Executive of the Australian Council of International Development. UNRWA uh, provides the bulk of the services in the occupied Palestinian territories and in Gaza. It provides health services, education, uh, livelihoods. Israel has alleged that some of the agency's staff were involved in Hamas's October 7 terrorist attack. A number of staff have already been fired, but Australia and other nations, including Switzerland, Germany and the UK, have paused their funding while an investigation takes place. Mark Purcell says the problem is the agency is crucial to saving lives in Gaza. It has to be a parallel process. The investigation around the very serious allegations against uh, a number of former uh, employees must of course, occur and has to be full and extensive. However, there are tens of thousands of other employees that are, and services that are being provided. More than 26,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to the health ministry in Gaza, and tens of thousands more injured since the war began. 
More than 1,200 Israelis were reported killed in the Hamas attacks on October 7. When asked about the relief agency on Thursday, Foreign Minister Penny Wong pointed to it being the only organisation providing substantive support to the occupied Palestinian territories. More than 1.4 million Palestinians are sheltering within UNRWA facilities and 3,000 of the workers for that association are working on the humanitarian response in the most trying of conditions. But Minister Wong says the allegations need to be thoroughly investigated. Middle East analyst Dr Roger Shanahan says she's sending a message to the UN. I think they're telling the UN in no uncertain terms that they want this investigation uh, to be done thoroughly, but they want it to be done quickly. Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Birmingham says the government should look to other agencies like the Red Cross or UNICEF instead. We want to see Australian support for innocent civilians in Gaza who clearly definitely need it. But we also want absolute confidence that Australian taxpayer dollars will support those who need it but Mark Purcell says it's not that simple. It'd be a bit like saying to the government of uh, Victoria or ACT, uh, can some other agency come in and run all the services uh, that you do overnight in the middle of a humanitarian catastrophe? It is simply not possible or tenable. Mark Purcell from the Australian Council for International Development ending Evelyn Manfield's report. We've heard a lot of scary things about artificial intelligence in recent times, but it also has a huge potential to turbocharge productivity across Australia after decades of sluggish growth. So much so, the Productivity Commission, the nation's independent agency on economic policy, is warning politicians to avoid making unnecessary and confusing new laws, saying that AI simply provides a more efficient and effective way to accomplish tasks already being done. Jacqueline Breen prepared this report. So today we've launched a new sandalwood, vanilla and orange fragrance. Karen Platt recently quit her corporate job to start her own eco-candle business. It's still a very small operation, just her, a co-founder and a couple of family members working to get it off the ground, along with a little help from ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence chatbot. So I asked it for a short description and it talks about the, you know, the sandalwood being nice and woody and warm and the orange being quite refreshing and then the vanilla being the, the sweeter style. But then the email I'm now sending out to our customers announcing that fragrance uh, as well as announcing to our wholesalers that that fragrance is available. Writing her marketing copy used to take three or four days out of Karen's month, which she can now spend growing the business instead and living her life. This could revolutionise our productivity and lift Australia out of its productivity crisis. The Productivity Commission Stephen King is the author of a new report out today looking at how Australia can make the most of the opportunities presented by AI. He says the biggest gains can be made in areas where productivity has been the lowest. The really important sector is human services, education, health, aged care, disability services. Those human services in particular have had very, very low productivity growth. They're areas where we've got significant labour shortages. So we need to have some way to improve productivity in those areas. Things like virtual tutors to be used in schools and universities, uh, diagnostics helped by AI. The Commission's report basically recommends what was announced by Labor last month and has been welcomed by the Coalition so far. 
That is a plan for a risk-based approach to regulating new AI technologies, where those that are deemed potentially harmful are regulated more tightly than those considered low risk. Stephen King says it's possible we don't need the kind of AI-specific laws that are part of the more cautious approach being taken in the EU. Starting with existing regulations, because most of those risks are covered by existing regulations, competition law, uh, laws around consumer protection, laws around privacy, laws around anti-discrimination. They're already there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel for AI. We need to make sure those laws are used and are fit for purpose for AI. The debate on how and how much to regulate AI in Australia will step up this year, with the government expected to announce very soon the members of an expert group to advise on what the regulations should look like. Jacqueline Brain reporting. Public submissions to the Federal Parliamentary Inquiry investigating supermarket pricing closed today. One suggestion is a network of community gardens and urban farms in the big city areas around Australia where those struggling with the high cost of living can grow and pick their own fruit and veggies and even raise their own chooks. Nick Grimm reports. When it comes to maintaining a healthy, balanced diet, the chickens at this community garden in Sydney have nothing to complain about. They do a great job in eating a lot of the grubs that we find and they dig up the soil and they turn it over so we then put that back into the compost as well, so that's really useful. Volunteer Emma Daniel is showing where locals tend to the plants and animals on this tiny sliver of public land squeezed into a crowded city. And while birdsong and the wind in the trees have to compete with the distant noise of wood chippers and so on, it's still a little patch of paradise for those who nurture it. You can see there's a myriad of flowers everywhere. There's lots of insects flying about on a warm summer morning. We've got a variety of edible plants, so lots of herbs even in the pathways. And there's plenty of tidbits for chickens and humans alike. So here... We've got the flowers of fennel. Does it taste like licorice? It does. Isn't it amazing? So I like to use those in salads. You can just nip off the top of them, such a strong flavour in a little flower. And it's those kinds of taste sensations that attract bees, insects and long-standing volunteer gardeners like Marika Nabang. Showing your kids how things grow and how they're supposed to look like when they're eating stuff, it doesn't always come out of a packet. When they have something at the supermarket, it doesn't have the same taste as it does here. It's just nice to come down of an evening and pick a couple of things and have them for dinner. But some argue gardens like these can be so much more, and much more could be gardens. I see so many spaces like this that are just wasted spaces. They sit behind cyclone fencing, growing weeds in concrete. Dr Nick Rose is the director of Sustain, a network of organisations working to develop practical solutions to problems with our food systems. And after surveying Australians' attitudes to growing their own food, he's calling for a national campaign to set up community gardens everywhere. So in our survey, uh, people on low incomes, people on benefits and older people, pensioners, all said that having access to space to grow their own foods was important to their household budgets and their food security. And that's an idea community gardener Marika Nabung believes would bear fruit. 
everyone's got a little something to contribute. It's not always the same thing and doesn't have to be physical. And I think people get a um, bit of the wrong idea. They think they've got to get in and dig all the time and it's hard slog. It's not. It's, it's conversation. It's social. It's pottering. It's learning. It's, it's fun. Community gardener Marika Nabung, Nick Grimm, reporting there. A world-first Australian study is investigating whether too much artificial light exposure at night can affect seaweed. Blue and other forms of light during the night can disrupt the natural sleep cycle in humans. Researchers in Sydney are now trying to find out if it also affects coastal seaweed forests. Kathleen Ferguson reports. Walking along Sydney's coastline at night, you can see the kelp below, lit up by street lamps. Millie Cayley is a research assistant at the University of New South Wales. She's part of a team trying to determine how this artificial light might affect seaweed. We're really interested in the effects of artificial light at night, which is something that's super widespread in our terrestrial and marine systems, but actually hasn't been as well studied compared to other forms of pollution. Um, And in our marine systems, it actually affects 22% of global coastlines. So it has a very wide effect, and this is the first experiment that we know of looking at its effects on seaweeds. In the lab at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science, she's exposing native seaweed to different kinds of light. So this is one of the kelps, and it's grown um, these beautiful lateral frills since we collected them. So some of them are growing and happy in the tanks. Um, and some of them have also lost tissue and bleached as a stress response. We hear things about blue light blocking glasses and making sure that our bedrooms are dark. Is it sort of an almost similar concept for seaweed? Yeah, absolutely. So blue light is super interesting because it can travel further in water compared to other light wavelengths. And like it has effects on human behaviours, it can also have effects on animal behaviours. So we've also conducted an experiment looking at its effects on sea urchins. And we found that the sea urchin behaviour changed with artificial light at night. So that will also have an effect on the seaweed. There are fears warming temperatures could make the impact of artificial light worse. But Millie Cayley says artificial light exposure comes with pretty manageable solutions. Unlike climate change, there's some really effective local controls that we can use to mitigate its impacts, um, including blue light filters, um, limiting light to where it's actually essential for human use. The Sydney Institute of Marine Science's general manager, Brett Fenton, says people don't often think of light as a problem. People think about physical pollution and pollutants. Uh, people don't really see light as potentially as a pollutant. It's just a byproduct of you know of our nights. Um, but in the marine environment, it has the potential to significantly impact, you know, right down to things like reproductive rates um, in um, aquatic environments. Millie Cayley says even though seaweed isn't always front of mind, it's critical we protect them. Seaweeds are kind of like the forests underwater that provide habitat food to organisms and they also really support our coastal economic communities um, and also support recreational activities like snorkeling. So they're really the kind of foundation species of our coastal ecosystem. So if there are effects happening to them, there'll likely be consequences for other organisms as well. University of New South Wales research assistant Millie Cayley ending Kathleen Ferguson's report. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. She's one of the most famous women in the world. So when sexually explicit images of Taylor Swift began appearing on social media, they went viral. 
Today, we meet with the American journalist who uncovered how a Microsoft tool was manipulated to produce the images. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener.